we are in Acts chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Acts. We're going through the book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. This is what we like to do here at the church. Expository preaching, going through books of the Bible. We've been in Acts. We're going to be till the uh, summer begins. We start a new series, The Life of Moses, The Gospel According to Moses. And then jump in in September and finish up um, Acts in September. So there's Bibles in the back if you want to follow along. Uh, with us. We're on uh, Acts chapter 15. As you know, 15 uh, is just about the middle of the book of Acts. It's 28 chapters in Acts. Just about the center of the book, um, not only verses, the center according to verses, but also thematically, uh, structurally, theologically, strategically in the center of the book of Acts. In chapter 15, as we looked at last week, the inevitable happens. We have a slide up. Let me see. Okay. The inevitable happens. Two cultures are coming together and colliding in the church. Because as the church begins to grow and the kingdom of God is advancing, also problems arise. Church growth creates problems, albeit good ones. More people trying to get into community groups and need for community group leaders. More parking spaces out front. Maybe a a larger gathering space. Cultures colliding, differences of opinions. That's just here at King's Chapel, right? So, these churches are coming together. The gospel is spreading from where it gave birth in Jerusalem, uh, then through persecution, as we know. It it spread through Judea, Samaria, just like Jesus said, to northern Galilee, and then to the city of Antioch in Syria. And we have seen over the past few weeks, people are becoming followers of Christ, also in Cyprus, which is in North Africa, um, island off of North Africa, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And in these places, God is drawing to himself through the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Gentiles, believers, not Jewish believers, but many, many, some Jewish believers, but many Gentile believers to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So the number, I believe, at this point in Acts chapter 15, the number of people that are, are, that are coming to faith in Jesus outside of Jerusalem that are not Jewish in their background is becoming greater than the Jewish center in which uh, the gospel began, a church gave birth. Um, if you remember, the gospel reached Antioch in Syria, uh, began to spread. Um, but remember, there's a difference between, we talked about this, the God-fearing Gentiles like the eunuch in chapter 10 or the, excuse me, in chapter 8 or Cornelius, the Italian military soldier in chapter 10, they were God-fearers. They had some uh, connection to Judaism. They were, they were seeking and, 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 and looking to worship Yahweh, the one true God. But here in Antioch, the, the gospel had gone forth and a lot of the, the Gentiles that were saved, that were giving their life to Christ, were polytheistic. They, they were worshipers of multiple gods. We're going to get into that a little bit later. And this little church, this little, uh, this gathering of people that were Gentiles, this, this people had nothing to do with Judaism, um, worshiping multiple gods, had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this multicultural, diverse, cosmopolitan city calls by the Holy Spirit, calls Paul and Barnabas to go out and to serve God on a missionary journey. They went to Cyprus, they went to Perga, Iconium, we see that in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And then they, Paul goes out, the gospel's spreading, the Asia Minor is starting to hear the gospel, people are coming to faith, Paul and Barnabas are excited, they're, they come back from their first missionary journey, they go back to Antioch, and they're saying, this awesome things are going on, great things are going on. 
Also remember, the church at its inception, as I said, was Jewish, mainly Jewish. And for centuries, this is really important as you understand Acts 15, for centuries, um, God gave Israel the law, the, the, the Mosaic law, both the ceremonial law, the, the uh, civil law, and the moral law as a way to be distinct, to be consecrated, which means to be distinct, to be separate from the rest of the world that God would call a people unto himself, gave them the laws so that they would be different. It was the task of the Jewish leaders to, to maintain that distinctiveness to the Israelites. But it was never at the place where they were to be distinct and separate themselves from the world in the sense of, we don't care about you, go to hell. It doesn't matter whether you know God. It was the distinctiveness so that there would be lights and salt to the nations around them. God called Israel to themselves never to be that place to isolate themselves. They should be distinct, but not isolate themselves from the rest of the world. They were to be salt and light. But they had a lot of pride in that separatistness. They had a lot of pride in their distinctiveness. God promised that a Messiah would come. Remember, Jesus was a Jew, a Jewish Messiah, comes from the tribe of Judah. God only had one covenantal people. Christianity was seen as a movement within Judaism, and for centuries, the Jewish people had always demanded of all Gentile converts to Judaism, to the one true God, to the covenant people, a requirement of circumcision and the ritual of following the law of Moses. So I say all that, so when we look at chapter 15 of Acts 1, The question that arose as these Gentile believers who had nothing to do with Judaism started coming to faith in Christ, the one true God, the question arose in this church with the Jews coming together with the Gentiles, a question was simply put, look at verse 1 of chapter 15, some men came down from Judea to Jerusalem and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the question within the church was, why should the way we've been doing things for thousands of years change? Why should we, who have always required Gentiles, non-Jews, to become worshipers of Yahweh, they had to go through their ritual of circumcision and washings and and certain ceremonial laws to become New Old Testament covenant people. Why should that change? Because the Messiah has come. So to them, they're thinking, nothing's changed. If you want to be a Christian, you still have to come the same way. You know, how can you argue with that? Thousands of years. Obviously, God was doing something, and they needed to see that. They needed to see that. So the question, what must you do to enter into the kingdom of God? What must you do to be a Christian was very important. In fact, in chapter 15, verse 2, It says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So this issue of how do we get in? Do we need to add something? Do we need to add ritual? Do we need to add the law of Moses in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved, in order to know and love Jesus? Man, it was a hot debate. Paul and Barnabas were not going to sit by and let someone come in and say, you need to add to your faith these certain things. So a debate arose, and the They said, you know what? We're not going to answer this question here. Let's go down to Jerusalem. Let's go down to Judea. Let's go down to talk to the apostles and the other elders and let's work this out together. So they go. Two questions in this council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 that needs to be answered. The first one we looked at last week. How does one become a Christian? 
Do you need to be a Jew first? Do you need to add to your faith? Do you need to follow the law of Moses? The answer is obviously absolutely not. The second question, which we'll look at today, has to do with now that I'm a child of God, what must I do to leave behind? What must I do and how do I leave things behind? How does it change my life? How being a child of God makes a difference in my life? And with that in mind, how do I get along with other people that may be very different than me? What, what is it that I need to leave behind and how do I have fellowship within two major different people, two major different cultures, two major different ways of doing things are now together one in Christ? How does that work? What must I leave behind and what do I do to make everyone seem to get along with the different cultures? So that's what we're looking at. Now remember, our, our, I just want to give you our outline from last week. Uh, the first we looked at the dilemma, verse 1. Uh, The dissension of the church in the church, verses 2 through 5. The deliberation by the church is 6 through 21. We saw some of that. We're going to go back to that. And then we'll look at the decision from the church and then the light of the church. That's where we're going. So the deliberation. Last week we talked about this topic. What happened? When When they came together, how did that discussion go? Remember? Peter stood up. He was the first one to stand up, the Apostle Peter. The apostles and elders were gathered. They were deli- deliberating the issues. Peter stands up, verse 7, and verses through 11. Peter says, listen, listen. God confirmed to me that salvation is by faith alone, not through the Mosaic work. He writes in verse 8 how God knows the heart, bore witness as he observed and witnessed the work of the Holy Spirit come down on the believers in, by, in the Cornelius household, and it confirmed to Peter, it told him straight up, right away, that what happened to these Gentiles by faith alone is the same thing that happened to the Jews in Pentecost chapter 2, the first day of Pentecost. And Peter says, you know what, I've seen it. I've witnessed what God was doing. It was by faith alone that the Spirit of God came. It was by faith alone that they received salvation. I, I saw that myself. And he says in verse uh, 11, Let's not put a yoke. Let's not add. Let's not add anything, verse 10, on the neck of the disciples. These Gentiles, these these non-Jews, let's not add stuff to them, man. Let's not burden them with the yoke of trying to obey the law. He says, because you know what? We haven't done it. Our ancestors haven't done it. None of us got saved by obeying the law because all of us fail. Amen? All of us, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So none of us have lived up to God's perfect standard. So let's not put yokes upon somebody else's neck, he says in verse 9. Verse 10. Verse 11, he says, just like you got saved, they're going to get saved. We're all going to get saved by grace alone. And then verse 12, the assembly fell silent. Paul and Barnabas men stand up. They relate what's going on. Listen, God's working miracles. It's by faith alone. We saw it happen. So Peter testifies. Now Paul and Barnabas testify. We pick up where uh, James talks in verse 13. So look at that with me, chapter 15, verse 13. After they finished speaking, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, James says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. Okay? People for his own name. And with these words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. 
verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from old. Now, I want you to see something. That's why I didn't want to just pass this last week. I want you to see something. First of all, James, the James here, is not, is not John's brother. Because there's a couple of Jameses in the Bible. John's brother was killed, remember, back in chapter 12. This is also not James the Apostle. Okay, we read that in Matthew. Jesus called the 12, and one of them was James, the, brother of, uh, uh, the son of Alphaeus. That's not him. This James in Jerusalem is James the Lord's half-brother. Jesus himself, half-brother, one of Mary's, uh, Jesus' mother's son, okay? Uh, the bishop of, of Caesarea back in 300 AD, his historian, says it was this James, Jesus' Jesus's half-brother, that led the council, that, that was the leader in Jerusalem, that was kind of the overseer, kind of the lead pastor in Jerusalem. It was him. And one of the things I want us to see, and I want you to see this morning is, which is, I think, remarkable and cool, is he affirms Peter... This is what Peter saw. We affirm that. We get that. that he, he, Peter is declaring what has taken place. But then he goes to the assurance of what Scripture says. He says, verse 15, and the words of the prophets agree. This is the second place that I know of in Scripture, I'm sure there's more, that while discussing truth, while talking about, you know, the eyewitness testimony, while, while the testimony is verbalized, it becomes finalized by Scripture. In fact, Peter, if you remember, Peter wrote in his second letter that he was up on the mountaintop and he saw Jesus' transfiguration, that place where Jesus brought him in and kind of the veil of his intrinsic glory shone through his, his, his clothes. And, and to, for Peter, it was like, you know, you are God, you are the Messiah, you are the one who will return. But this is what he writes. Second Peter, talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, watching, seeing Jesus just trans, intrinsic glory shine. He says, We have not followed cleverly devised myths when we, known, we made known to you the power, the power and the coming of Jesus Christ our Lord. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We heard the majestic glory. Okay? He said, I was there. God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, he says, heard this very voice. This very boy, uh, voice born from heaven. And then he says, and we have the prophetic word, that scripture, more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So then Peter's saying, I saw it, I experienced it, I witnessed it, but let me tell you something that's even more sure. The scripture said so. Feel the weight of that. James is saying, I hear you, Paul. I affirm you. Absolutely, God was working miracles. I get it. And, and wonders, I get it. Peter, I, I know what you're telling us is true. The Holy Spirit was coming upon the, the Cornelius. People were being saved by faith alone. I get it. But let me tell you something. He says, brothers and sisters, the scriptures have spoken and the prophets agree. It's not just enough to say, I've experienced this. He says that actually the scriptures speak of it. And James quotes from the prophet Amos. And he says not only does Amos say so, but multiple prophets have spoken about the coming of the Messiah, that he will open the door to every nation, every tribe, all tongues and peoples. 
The incoming of the Gentiles by faith alone is not just some remote place in the Old Testament, a single passage. It was prophesied, it was announced, it was made known, it was revealed through people like Isaiah, people like Jeremiah, people like Joel spoke about this. And you know what else is interesting? You wouldn't know this. Maybe you have a footnote in your Bible, but it says that what James quoted from Amos was quoted from the Septuagint. If you have in your Bible, it says LXX. That's the number 70. 70 Old Testament, excuse me, yes, 70 Old Testament Hebrew scholars translated the Old Testament into Hebrew, into Greek before Jesus came, a couple hundred years actually. So what James is doing is James is quoting not from the Hebrew Bible, but he's quoting from the Greek Bible. In other words, just to say, hey, we understand. This is what the scriptures say. Now the prophets, excuse me, the apostles and the elders and even Jesus would have had both a Hebrew and a Greek Bible. But James speaks directly from the Greek, Greek Old Testament. And you know what, know what that prophecy is saying? Amos chapter 9, the quote that he, uh, James talks about in Amos 9, it actually is referring to the prophecy given to King David, David by the prophet Nathan. There God tells David, listen, a house is going to be built for me, but a literal temple you will not build, your son will build. But David, I make you this promise. From you, from your offspring, from your seed, one will come who will build an eternal kingdom, an eternal house. He will, he will invite everyone in the remnants, you see that in our scripture, a portion of the Gentiles who will bear my name. And the goal of this rebuilding, if you look at that prophecy, is to allow all of humanity, not just Jews, but Greeks and all people to seek God. James concludes that God has received even Gentiles who represent God and bear God's name. Look at verse 14. It's the term the people, in ver- laos in, 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 the, in the Greek, is significant because it speaks of God's people. And, and James is saying the people of God are both Jew and Gentile. Verse 17, the word mankind. You see that in verse 17? If you have an ESV. I don't know what the NIV, anybody have an NIV? What does verse 17 say? For man, mankind, anthropos, mankind. In the Hebrew text, it says nations. And James says, you know what? It's not simply nations. I'm going to interpret what it says. It means everyone, all mankind. Everyone's invited. Everyone can come. That's what he's saying. And he's letting the Gentiles know that this house that David's son's going to build, which is Jesus, the promise given to David will choose for himself and will restore to himself a people of both Jew and Gentile. Now that, mean, that may seem like no big deal to you, but it was a big deal back then. Paul is saying this is what happened. Peter is saying this is what happened. And then James stands up and says, listen, God has already said to us in multiple places, in many ways, through many people, that everyone can come. Everyone can come. You know, God keeps his word. You know that? God keeps his promises. I was flipping through the channels the other day and I saw, I, I, I was watching um, um, The Wizard of Oz, the old one. I don't, not the new one. I don't have a new one, but the old one. And one of the things, I was just flipping through watching it for a few minutes. Gotta love that classic. Maybe you don't, but that's okay, I do. Anyway, um, when she comes back with the broom, 
burnt. I got it. Do you remember she puts the broom down? She says, okay, Grant, you know, this is what you said. And he says to them, go, come back tomorrow. And you know what she says to him? Because, see, I am the great and powerful Oz. You know what she said? I caught my eye. I wrote it down. I had to jot it down. I'm always looking for gospel, right? She says to him, if you were so great and you were so powerful, you'd keep your promises. I thought, oh, that's a great line. That's so true. If you were so great and you were so powerful, you'd keep your promises. You know, our God is that great. Our God is that wonderful. And that God is ultimate. And he keeps his promises. And this is what the promise that he made. Here's the promise that he made. What the Jews were trying to do coming down from Jerusalem was trying to mix law and grace. To say you can save by grace, but you've got to add law. To pour new wine, skin, new wine into old wineskins. Trying to amend the veil that was, that was torn, that God tore from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. Trying to block the way to God. They attempted to reconstruct barriers between Jews and Gentiles. But this council was so that the barriers can come down. Paul tells us that Jesus has broken down these barriers in his flesh. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. By abolishing the law of commandments, he fulfilled the law. That he may create in himself one new man, Jew and Gentile, making peace. Reconciling both in God, one body, through the cross thereby killing the hostility between the two. See what's happening here? See, they were deliberating, and the conclusion was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, something God has been doing from the very beginning. And I'll say this to you, I don't care where you've been, I don't care what you've done, I don't care where you have gone, Christ bid you come. Come, come to the cross. Come, have your sins forgiven. Come to the cross. So, James says, all right, when all is said and done, we have experience that's going on with the apostles and elders, and yet we have the theology of the Word of God. We have the teaching from the New Testament apostles, we have Peter standing up, but yet we have confirmation through the Old Testament prophets of Amos and other prophets. So both divine events and Scripture sustain the church's inclusion of Gentiles, and that for James is irrefutable. So now a decision needs to be made, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment, James saying, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, that's not Iscariot, right? He hung himself, different Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, who will be a partner with Paul soon enough, and leading men from among the brothers. All right, so get a bunch of good brothers that are solid brothers that have been serving here in the church and go with Paul and Barnabas and with this letter. Now, as I said last week, abstaining from these four things has been troubling somewhat to interpret, and they have different interpretations over the years. One thing as you study Scripture is let the context dictate to you. One of the things we know that this verse is not saying, you're saved by grace alone, abstain from these four things. One thing we know for sure, according to the context, right? One thing we know for sure is that James is not saying you have to add these four things 
You need these four things. Add them to your faith in order for you to be a Christian. They just deliberated. They just debated. They just made a decision about that. He's not adding law to them. He's not imposing some mosaic law and restrictions upon them. The question at the heart of the matter is, were these restrictions simply some concessions that Gentiles are being asked to make because two cultures are colliding? Some people take that approach. Was it simply urging the Gentiles, listen, you guys are, you guys are mingling together, Jews and Gentiles, and, and we're going to ask you to limit some freedom that you have so that you can be a witness to the unsaved Jews and be more effective and enjoy fellowship together. So here's some things. Could you guys just do these things so there can be some unity among you? It says in the text that they had to abstain. The apostles are writing to abstain. I think that's kind of strong language. It's not, hey, guys, you know, would you mind? We're going to write these things, abstain. Doesn't seem like, it seems to me like more, of a, more than just a concession. The problem saying that, and some commentators will say that, it's just a concession, is one of the things, there's four things, one of the things that we are to, not to do, that if we call it conceding or, or a concession, is sexual immorality. That's the one that gets everybody. The other things we could make reference to, you know, ceremonial law and kind of, you know, make concession for as you gather with other cultures. But sexual immorality is not a concession. That's a standard. That's the moral law of God. So it's, it's not just like, you know, if you guys don't mind when you guys are hanging out together, like, you know, stop having sex all over the place, you know, while the Jews are present. I mean, God's not going to say that, right? So that, that's, that's a tough one. So what's up with these four? Why these four things? I've been racking my brain all week on this, just so you know. Reading everything I can. First, let me say this. Concessions. Doing things that you would normally do but not do. Can't always be, or should not always be called, and which in some circles I run, are called legalism. Right? If I'm not going to do this, you're a legalist. Right? Now, does anyone who likes to beat up on legalists, it's me, okay? And part of the reason is I'm a recovery from it, okay? I was the younger brother out in the pig pen using drugs, and then I became the elder brother with my Bible saying, look how good I am. Been both sides. So I'm against legalism. I get that. But a balanced approach tells us that we cannot put every concession into the category of legalism. Let's get a definition of legalism. You know, not doing something is not automatically legalism. Legalism, by definition, is a moralistic approach to your salvation. Rules and regulations is the way in which I am saved. I I admit that it's a slippery slope when one achieves some sort of Bible knowledge. They're walking with Jesus. They're becoming more and more like Christ. It becomes a slippery slope down the slide of look how good I am. Look how wonderful. Look how well I'm doing. Why can't you do that good? That's a problem. That's deadly. That's legalism. It stifles freedom. It stifles the work of the Spirit. It stifles uh, the power of the Spirit in your life. But we just can't use that term legalist against those people who say, you know what, I don't want to do that because I love Jesus. I want, I want to, I'm serious about my obedience. I'm serious about my, my consecration. My desire is to love and to serve and to look like Jesus. We shouldn't just label them automatically as legalists. And take obedience seriously than someone else. So, 
You don't hang out in those places I go? No, I don't. You're a legalist. You've got to be careful. You don't go to those movies? You've got trouble with those movies? You're a legalist. You won't drink beer? You're a legalist. Big L on your head. You're a legalist. And that's what we throw that around. You don't go to those movies. You don't do those things. That's not necessarily legalism. It's not about gaining your salvation through moral effort. It's the changes you make in your life as you follow Christ. It's a big difference between the two. I, I want to be really clear about that. Our obedience, our works are never the way in which we enter the family of God. You cannot work your way in. I don't care how hard you try. The Bible says all your righteousness are but filthy rags. It is by grace alone. But unfortunately, Martin Luther had it right when he said that the default mode of every human heart is work-based salvation. It seems that we get saved by grace through faith alone and then we work on our sanctification and then we fall into, look how good I am. Look how righteous I am. Why can't you do this? Why are you doing that? Why aren't you doing that? So we must be careful. We declare our justification being right with God is by faith alone, through grace alone, is a gift. It's given to us simply by faith. But when the Holy Spirit takes root in our heart, there comes an obedience, a work of sanctification to be more like Jesus. There are things that we leave behind and there are things that we strive for, things that we walk away from and things that we walk in obedience in. You know, Paul told Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. That Greek word is gymnazo, where we get the word gymnasium. Work, train. Paul told the Philippian church, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not a work-based salvation, but it's a life that's changed. It's a life now that's walking with Christ. Martin Luther said this, Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done, but before anyone asks, it already has done them and continues to do them without ceasing. Anyone who does not do good works in, his, in this manner is an unbeliever. Thus, it is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. A life of obedience and growth toward Christ-likeness is the mark, is the outworking of free gift of salvation. Yes, it can become legalism. Yes. Where all of a sudden what you're doing seems to be more important than relying on the grace of God. We're going to talk about that. But this decision, don't do these four things, I do not believe was adding on a yoke, was a form of legalism of these things you shouldn't do. Look how good I am. You shouldn't do these things because you've got to add this to your faith. I do not believe that. Some say it has to do with the Noah uh, covenant in chapter 9. I don't think that's right either. Some people look at this and say, you know what? They picked four things out of the law of Moses, uh, Leviticus 18 and 19, and they want them to follow them. I, I can't see that. So the question becomes, why are these four things important? Right? You can't say it's just a concession because there's sexual immorality. It, it, you, you look at this and, you, and you're racking your brain about it until... You realize this has to do with the culture of that day. This is not about eating rare steak. Can't have blood in it. I hope not because I'm going to grill later today. (laughs) You must cook your meat like a hockey puck. That's not what it means. With blood. 
It's not some concession, some law. Although I think this concession or this, this, this letter has a little bit to do with concession. I mean, Moses, verse 21, is being read regularly in the synagogues. We need to care about other culture. We need to care about other people. But the point is that the law is read and they should be sensitive to the fact that there are Jewish people present in the church. That they should be careful. They should care. They should want to witness to them. They want to be able to connect to them. They want to contextualize the gospel. That's definitely there. But notice what it says in verse 20. The first thing that's mentioned is things that are polluted by idols. I think that's the, that, that's, that's the thrust of this. What he's saying is, listen, the Gentiles are used to and are involved in worship in temples and idols and have all kinds of pagan rituals that are going on throughout the empire. That's what he's saying. In fact, if you read in those days, there were temples built all over the Roman Empire. Here, Antioch, in Corinth, we went through Corinth as well. There was um, uh, temples that were built to, you know, people like Artemis and Zeus and Aphrodite to the Roman emperor. There was feasts and festivals, and that was part of the culture of that day. The Greeks in that day, everything they did was centered around those pagan practices, the pagan cultures. All the temples there, they would sacrifice animals. They would strangle their animals so that blood would remain in their, in their, in their meat. There was a massive amount of sexual sin. There was prostitutes. There was male prostitutes and female prostitutes. They had streets that are lined up with these prostitutes, sort of like Vegas, at least parts of Vegas. All right, except without the meat, although you probably get that down there too, but this was part of who they were. So the issue is not so much about steak, but about setting. Not so much about menu, but about venue. They were not just polytheistic. See, the Greek culture of that day, they were what would be called demonistic. They, were, they, were, they believed that demons had you know, entered into these meats and chicken wings and you have to be careful and you have to take your chicken wings and sacrifice them first to their God of, of nature and, and all this pagan idolatry was going on. It was ingrained. It was part of who they were. It was very much a way of life. The animal sacrifice at these temples was a problem in Corinth. Remember what Paul said? Paul said, listen, there is no such thing as an idol. They're worthless. In fact, you can have the meat eaten in the temples. If you remember, we covered this. He said, but one thing you need to remember is don't be a stumbling block. Remember what he said, 1 Corinthians 8? Don't take this right of yours to eat meat offered in a, in a, in a pagan temple. Do not take that and, and, and somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I think that has something to do with it. Don't be a stumbling block. If that meat's been offered to idols and it's really nothing to you because you know the true God, you know what? If it's no problem to you, go and eat. But don't do it so that a weaker brother stumbles. I think that's really important. And I think it's important to say there's a difference between a weaker brother who has a a, a hurting and a weaker conscience who can't do certain things because it leads them into idolatry than a brother who's a Pharisee who just wants to judge you and everything you do. I think there's a huge difference between the two. John Calvin called them the tough giants. They want to play the tyrant and put your freedom under their control. They're not being led into sin because of the weak conscience. All they want to do is find fault with everybody else. Huge difference between the two. Someone who's stumbling, someone who's weak, I want to protect them, I want to love them, I want to care for them, to someone who says, oh, look at you, look what you're doing. 
I can't believe you're doing that. Big difference. Big difference. So don't be a stumbling block. And then he goes to write, Paul writes about food off the idol in chapter 10 of Corinth. And he says, listen, if it's being offered and it's part of the service, don't be involved with that. You can't serve Christ and, 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 and worship him at the altar and then go to the altar of demons where they're kind of sacrificing and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. He says to them in verse, um, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. This is in 1 Corinthians. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So I bring all that up because I think that's what's going on. Just like Paul had to deal with Corinth, uh, James has to deal with the Antioch and the other regions in that area saying, listen, if it has to do with worship and idolatry and the sacrifices and the giving and the worshiping of false idols, don't be involved. Don't be involved in the sacrifices. Don't be involved in the strangling of meat. Don't be involved in the sexual impurities. Stay away from things polluted by idols. In fact, the word polluted is used in the Old Testament twice in Daniel and Malachi talking about desecration. Talking about desecration. So don't do those things. Don't be involved in those things. That's what he's saying. So I think what we can, I think taking away from what the decision is, I think we can say this. In all likelihood, I think, this is a request to be faithful to one true God. Stay away from idol worship. To be moral in worship. To be concerned as we worship in two different cultures with other people. Their worship as well. They should limit things that are offensive associated with idolatry. Having a rare steak is not the problem. But causing a brother or sister to stumble. So they come to an agreement. It's to send this out. Salvation is by faith alone through Christ alone. But with that comes some things that you must turn from. Mainly idolatry, false worship. So in the general, there's a turning from idolatry, but practically, there are things that, now, now follow me, there are things that you may feel free to do, but may be very harmful to others that you must stop. We are not to cause a weaker brother or sister to return to the worship of idols. One of the things that comes to mind for that, and I, and I don't need any emails, we could talk about it if you want, but is the issue of alcohol or the issue of, of meat or other things. It may be fine for you, but if you cause a weaker brother, a weaker sister to stumble, they're falling back into idolatry. The worship of drugs, the worship of alcohol. Or maybe it's gambling or maybe it's, maybe it's something that you don't struggle with like music. And you know the brother or sister has a problem with certain movies. Or so, you know, we want to stay away from that while you're with them. Because for them, if they fall from their conscience, if they're weaker and they fall back into it, they're falling back into false worship. So we have to be careful. That's what this letter is all about. I really believe that. I mean, the first commandment is simple. Have no other gods before me. Now, we're not talking about stone. We're not talking about wood. We're not talking about things that you would create and put down on your TV. It may be the TV, but on the TV. We're talking about things that are bad, drugs, alcohol. We're talking things that are good, marriage and and kids and self-expression, beauty, achievements. When good things become ultimate things, they become idols. So whatever you're pouring your life out for, whatever whatever you fill in this question, answer this question, not out loud, but answer it. If only I had this, I will be happy. If only I had this, 
I will have purpose. If only I had this, I could live a fulfilled life. Whatever it is in that blank, that's your God. Whether it be good things, becoming ultimate things, or bad things that you worship, other than the true living God. Now, he's saying you don't have to look like me. You don't have to do everything that I do. But there are things that we need to leave behind that are polluted by idols. Maybe it's what you do on the weekends. Maybe you do certain things going on on the weekends and now they become a Christian. You know what? I really need to stop doing those things. Maybe it's a different wardrobe. I don't know. I'm not going to judge you. Let the Holy Spirit teach you. Let the Holy Spirit show you. But there is a turning to Christ. Folks, we live in a world, listen, we live in a world, we live in Western culture, I should say in America, where Jesus Christ is declared as someone who, check this out, comes alongside you. You have your dreams, you have your goals, you have your your mission, you have your school, you have your desires, you have your portfolio, whatever you have, you have and you're going. And then what you do is you say, hey, Jesus, you know what? Come alongside me as I pursue and then empower me so I can live for myself. Help me along the way. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus calling us, turn from the road of destruction. Turn from seeking to be your own Savior and Lord. Turn from the ways to hell and destruction. Come to me. I can give you life, forgiveness, mercy. Turn, don't go that direction. The gospel is a turning to Christ from the road on which you were headed. There's stuff that you have to leave behind. That's true gospel call. And there's life in his name. There's mercy in his name. There's grace in his name. And then he comes and he empowers us and changes our desires. He changes the direction in which we headed. We are headed. Verse 19 says that the Gentiles turn to God. Paul will write a letter to the Thessalonica church shortly after this. And this is what he says. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you into Macedonia, but your faith in God has grown everywhere so that we need to say nothing. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you, Thessalonica, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God as you wait for Jesus who was raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a turning. Now, before we hit our last point, let me, just, let me just answer this question. How do you know, this was something on my heart, maybe you could take away something from it, but how do you know if your if you're sanctification, if, if striving toward Christ-likeness has made you either a legalist or someone who's gone too far the other way, no real change? How do you know? I'm going to answer that question before we move on to our third point. When sanctification, Christ-likeness, striving toward Christ-likeness is driven by grace, it's about God, it's about Jesus, His record, what He has done, not mine, it will produce a humility in you and will set you on mission with Jesus. It will not judge others as unworthy to receive the gospel, but will lovingly send you on mission to see others as recipients to hear the gospel. To see the gospel lived out in your life. To be sanctified, set apart, driven by grace. is a life of humility and repentance coupled with reassurance and joy. Because my life's not based on my performance, but Jesus' performance. Therefore, I'm free to repent of sin. 
I can confess and repent of sin and yet have the assurance that my sins have been forgiven. And that brings great joy and great assurance. Okay? Sanctification striving toward Christ falls into legalism when my attitude becomes you should be doing this, you should be doing that. My attitude is not like, but for the grace of God, there go I. I didn't choose the family I grew in. I didn't choose where I'd be born. I didn't choose my upbringing. If I'm a Christian, it's by grace. It's by grace alone. And when you are changing with that truth, that gospel truth, you won't become a legalist. But sometimes, unfortunately, it's when bad things happen. God, how can you do this to me? Why did you let this happen? I pray, I give, I serve, I love that people next door. No one else likes them but me. And now look at me. That's a sure sign of legalism. I'll tell you that right now. But just as legalism can be deadly, so is a life that never repents. If you're a Christian here today and you're like, you know what, I remember the last time I was convicted of a sin. You should repent like now because that's a lie, okay? (laughs) That's a problem. If there's no desire to follow Jesus, to love Jesus because of my salvation, if there's no turning from, there's no leaving behind, if there's no striving and devotion of to live a life pleasing, something's wrong. Something's wrong. We need to talk. But you see the balance? You see the balance? I hope you do. I hope you do. I hope you do. And what, when they find this out, listen, this is the light of the church. Verse 22, and it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them. Send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Sabbath, and Silas, leading men. Verses 23 through 29, we won't look at that. It's really the decision. It was the letter that was sent. I think it's important, though, that we stop just to look and just say that Paul and Barnabas were sent back and with two leading men. Think about it for a minute. Can you imagine these two leading men from Jerusalem show up at the Antioch church with this letter? They're going to think, where's Paul and Silas? You guys whacked them on the way? Where are they? Are they buried somewhere in the desert? Where are they? Right? Then if Paul and Barnabas shows up and there's no other men from Jerusalem, the people from Jerusalem who have been started this whole thing to begin with are going to say, oh, wait a minute, how do we know this is true? So the Jerusalem council smart. They send two people from each contingent to go and to, to share the letter with the church. I think it was smart. It showed unity, I think. Verse 30. So when they sent off, they went to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it out loud, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophet, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers. You guys can go back now. Verse 35. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch. Let's stay for a while, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Notice, I want to notice as we close, it was received with encouragement. There was great joy. Now, you might think, if you're a dude, and you came back and said, I don't have to be circumcised, that would automatically bring great joy. (laughs) I'm sure that was part of it. Like, great news. That was really bad news that they were saying, but this is really good news in comparison to the bad news. Like a little girl wrote to her parents, Mom, Dad, just thought I'd let you know I dropped out of college. I'm changing all my plans. I fell, in some, I fell in love with some guy named Jim. He quit school after 10th grade. He lives under the overpass in our city. We've been steady about two months and we're getting married. Next page said, Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far is not true. 
But mom and dad, I did get a C in French and I flunked math. Yes, and I'm going to need money for tuition. You know what I mean? So like, you know, (laughs) news that may not sound particularly good sounds really good if you give the really bad side. That sounds great. (laughs) For the Gentile believers in Antioch, making a few changes, they're like, oh yeah, we could do those four things? That's nothing, because that other thing you want us to do? I'd rather not do that. So this is great news. (laughs) Or maybe it's just simply... No ritual, no ceremony, faith alone. I think that's part of it, right? They're finding out, you know what? I, I don't have to do all that stuff. Jesus loves me, accepts me just the way I am. He wants me to turn from my sins so that I will change my direction and walk with him. I was told when I first became a Christian almost 30 years ago, about 27 years ago, that, brother, you speak in tongues? I said, no, and I do believe in the gift of speaking in tongues. Um, you speak in tongues? I said, no, I, I don't really know. Oh, brother, you ain't saved. Unless you speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. I thought, really? God has done such great work in my life. I was a Christian about a couple of months. And I, and I went back, and I, and I read my Bible, and I read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. I'm like, it's a gift. Not everybody has it. I was fine with it. It confirmed for me what God was doing in my life. He changed me. I knew there was a change. And I rejected that false teaching. And I think there was confirmation that, you know what, that's not true. Or maybe, just maybe, when the news came back to Antioch, maybe the Gentiles were thinking, you know what, we don't want the life of idolatry anymore. We went down that road before. We tried those things before. Idols, the only thing idols did was bring us into bondage. We're free in Christ. We'll be more than happy to abstain from that. We'll be more than happy to turn our back on that ingrained cultural part of our lives that is wrong, that is broken, that is sinful, that doesn't give life. So this is great news for us. We don't want to go there anyway. There's no life in idols. There's no life. Jesus is life. Demons want to strangle. False teaching, false idolatry is nothing but bondage. We're free. This is great news. You better believe I want to come out of that. So you can either demolish your idols or they'll demolish you. Everett Harrison in commentary says these five things, and we'll wrap up with this, that the council accomplished. Five things the council accomplished. Number one, the gospel of divine grace was reaffirmed. Folks, there's nothing you can do to add to your salvation. It's a gift by grace alone through faith alone. No ritual, no procedure, no ceremonial law will ever save you. It is through Christ Christ alone through faith alone, and the council came to that decision. Number two, the unity of the church was safeguarded. Guess what, guys? Love won. Love won. Concessions were made. A turning was made. A leaving back some stuff that you got to get away from was made. The Bible says that they will know you if you have love for one another. Unity in the church. Number three, evangelism went forward with the Gentiles. We're going to see in the next few months, many, many people come to faith. Paul's missionary journeys and his church planting succeeded. And people became to know and love Jesus. Number four, the, the Gentile churches had already established, were encouraged. They were strengthened. A shot in the arm goes a long way when you're persecuted and people hate you and you're facing opposition. When those people repented of their sins and were involved in that ritualistic nonsense anymore. They were persecuted. Number five, the future of the church as a whole was guaranteed. The gospel and the church move forward without hindrance. Jesus said, I will build my church and the the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Great counsel, very important. They had a dilemma. 
the dissension had started. There was something to stand up against. We're not going to go for this, adding to the gospel. They deliberated it by the church. They came to some conclusions. They sent the decision out to the church. Listen, it's by faith alone, through Christ alone, but you must turn from your idols. You must turn to Jesus. Be careful not leading other people down that road so that they fall into sin and begin to worship idols. Be careful. And then there was great delight. There was great delight. It was a shot. It was encouraging as they moved forward. So let me ask you this morning. Number one, if you're not a Christian, have you trusted in Christ? Have you yielded your life to Jesus Christ? Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Have you really repented of your sins, turned direction, and turned to Jesus? Trust Jesus, love Jesus. The Bible says everyone is sin and falls short from God's glory. And that Christ came and paid the penalty for our sins. He died on a Roman cross. He rose victorious over sin, death, and hell and paid the debt that you owed. Have you ever repented of your sins and yielded and trusted in Jesus? Or are you trying to justify your own life? Gaining this, gaining that, doing this, doing that. It'll come up empty each and every time. And let me ask you this. If you've never done so, as we take communion, we pray that today will be the first day that you'll take communion as a brother and sister in Christ. Repent of your sins. Trust Jesus Christ. And maybe you're a Christian here today. And there's some things that God's been saying, you need to turn from it. You need to turn from it. You need to turn from it. You need to close that door. You need to walk this way. You need to close that. You need to, to be obedient to me. Because I love you. I saved you. I had mercy on you. My grace is upon you. Get out of that. Come this way. I don't know. We let the Holy Spirit do that. Do that work. So this bread represents the body that was broken, the cup, the blood that was shed. This is our salvation. Christ's death. His blood shed for our sins. His resurrection from the grave is the receipt written across the sky, paid in full. No question to ask. Doesn't matter uh, what your personal opinion is. His resurrection is our guarantee that his death was sufficient. He paid the price. And he rose victorious over that. So I'm going to call the church to repentance. Maybe you're a legalist. You need to stop. Maybe you don't take sanctification serious enough. And you need to get real. That's up to you. I'll let you decide. Be open to what God wants to speak to your heart as we close. Father, we pray for those that are here that have not made that commitment to Jesus. Father, we pray that they would See by your spirit the glories of Christ, the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ on their behalf for their sin and their hearts would turn and worship Jesus, the one true God. Help them to turn from their idolatry. Lord, we pray as a church that your spirit would work in our hearts, that we too would repent of sin. Things we ought to say that we don't, things we ought to do that we have not. Directions we may be headed that we need to turn from. Attitudes, perspectives that are not pleasing. Father, help us to be a humble people. To be confident in you, but to be humble. To walk humbly before you. To do justice, to love mercy. And Lord, help us, I pray, that we would live on mission. Recognizing, if not for the grace of God, there go I. Help us, Father. Empower us. And Lord, as we repent of sin, we remember and celebrate all the work of Jesus. 
And it's in his great and glorious name. Amen.